0: So we have been talking about uh, what we're calling the core. The core biblical ideas, the core theological ideas. What is it that that we need to center on in our faith? And we started talking about God as Trinity, as Trinity, excuse me. And then the last couple of weeks we've been talking specifically about Jesus and who he is. And And like I'll tell you, there are things that we're leaving out here. For sure, we could go much in depth with all these things and don't have time for all that. So we have to kind of pick and choose a little bit. One of the things, though, that I think it's important to talk about are the teachings of Jesus. And to be honest with you, if if I go through a, a, a textbook on systematic theology and I look at all the different ways that theology is developed by people who are writing such things, they don't talk much about this. This is not thought of as a kind of core of biblical teaching, which I think is a big mistake. Uh, It's kind of like, um, we'll get to this probably eventually, but most of those books don't talk about discipleship either. And so to leave out the teachings of Jesus or to to leave out the notion of discipleship just seems to me like it would be a a massive mistake. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go through, and I, I know we're pretty familiar with the teachings of Jesus but I want to give an overview of the teachings of Christ, uh, particularly in kind of their style and their focus and the, the things that are, were at the heart of his teaching. And we'll do this first. Like, you guys are very familiar with these passages. Like, you're very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. But I want us to look at this, I not not as if we have new eyes, but to look at the Sermon on the Mount as really a, a key central element in the teachings of Jesus. And I'm going to kind of talk about what I think is the introduction within the Sermon on the Mount and then how this kind of unfolds. And if nothing else, um, if you're a Bible-believing person who reads the Bible and tries to, to figure out what the teachings of Jesus are all about, this is going to talk about uh, a core teaching of Jesus and probably give you some insights into the teachings of Jesus that you haven't seen before, at least in terms of, of this particular teaching. So first of all, I think that there's actually three types of introductory material to the Sermon on the Mount. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I always feel good when we have a Bible class and we end up opening our Bibles. That always feels nice. So Matthew chapter 5. And I won't say that these are three separate introductions, but these are three, three facets, I think, of what constitutes an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And the first part of this we're going to find in what is typically known, in the first 11 or 12 verses, I think it's the first 12, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 we normally refer to as what? The Beatitudes. Why do we call them the Beatitudes? Okay, okay. What's the connection between blessedness and be? Yeah, I know. I know. I knew knew you did. (laughs) There is beauty here. And the word beatific is there in that word beatitude. There is something of the notion of us actually being these things. But there are beautiful attitudes that we're supposed to have, Jesus is saying. And that if we possess these particular perspectives... Especially about ourselves, something good is really going to come to us and be present, okay so blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, and then it goes on and, and do I have it that right in the right order by the way did I have that right good excellent so Jesus here I think sets this up uh, with this particular perspective from the outset, and what is it that he's really asking of people, do you think, in the Beatitudes? If you had to sum this up, what is, what's Jesus trying to say in the course of those 12 verses that, that could be used as kind of a summary of what that's all about?
1: Love others.
0: Okay. He certainly I mean loving others is certainly part of what Jesus is going to talk about. In fact, he's going to talk about that very specifically in chapter 5 near the end. Ronnie, if you're going to be part of the kingdom,
2: the, attitude is, sorry, the attitude that you have you're,
0: if you're in the kingdom. The that you have. Okay, yeah. I I I think these are, are certainly a good depiction of kingdom kind of attitudes or kingdom kind of perspectives that a person is going to have for sure and that's why the first one says blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven this is kingdom language Uh, um, it's not in every specific one but at least i can think of at least two of these one at the beginning and one nearer down toward the end where kingdom is specifically mentioned as an element that goes along with this kind of behavior, or attitudes. So you possess these, and, and you also possess in the course of that the kingdom, which, of course, is very crucial uh, to what Jesus is trying to do. Okay? Now, if, if... Ron, were you going to say something? Matthew 6.33 says... Seeking for the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's kind of a summary Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. So Matthew 6.33 is, again, going to go right back to the kingdom and focus on the kingdom as the center of Jesus' teaching, and then say to us, we need to seek the kingdom, in fact, the way Jesus is seeking the kingdom. And I think that's exactly right. So here are some attitudes and perspectives that set us up for the teaching that is going to come afterwards. And so it's like, get yourselves ready. Get your heart ready. Get your mind ready for what it is that is about to unfold here. Because uh, I'm going to give you some stuff and you need to see this all within the right context. And you need to have the right heart as you approach this. Okay?
1: This is also Jesus talking about how we are to treat others. I mean, the, if you think about when, when God was walking with Adam and Eve, that perfect relationship, and we broke away from that, and it was man against man. And here he's describing how we really need to interact with each other in God's
0: eyes. Yeah. I, I, I don't dispute that for sure, Steve. Um, I don't know. Like if someone said, what's the focus of the first 12 verses? I don't know if I would say my relationship with others. Now, all these things are going to impact my relationship with others for sure. No doubt about it. But it seems, to me anyway, and, and I mean, you're free to disagree. But um, I, I... So This kingdom
1: living, this is what the new kingdom... It needs to look like.
0: sure and as he goes through the rest of the sermon on the mount there's tons of you know that speaks to the issue of how we're going to live with uh, you know with in the context of, with others for sure but i just my, my sense is that jesus <clears throat> excuse me is trying to set up here in the beginning he's trying to set up our hearts trying to set up our attitudes that's why he says blessed are those who mourn well that's that's something that's happening within me blessed are those who are meek because that's how, something that's happening within me something what do we Uh, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are things that are happening with me. Poor in spirit, that's happening within me. Do those impact my relationships? Of course. But there's just so much focus at this point in who am I in relationship to God? Okay? Uh, Carrie and then Jonathan. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, I would agree. That's why he, like and we'll get into this in just a moment, but that's why he's able to say things like, you have heard, but I say to you. Okay, Jonathan? I was, I'm just your class for a minute, but you know this part. It seems
1: to me, though, that some summer- of sure. Yeah, right. yeah. I righteous, but whether you are
0: persecuted or not, it's not like you. Right. And the same with
1: some of the, the poor in spirit those who the I guess I can find things to dwell and to warn about, but I think it's more describing, in some ways, it's counterfactual, right? Jesus is saying, kingdom belongs to people that you didn't expect the kingdom belonged to. Belong
0: to. Sure. Those that you think will bless.
1: These are the marginal, these are the Disciples say that you sent his men or his parents, that
0: he's always poor in spirit. Like that, he's always a warning comment. He's saying, like, no, yeah. they're the parents of the king. Yeah. So there's, some of it is immutable attitude, but some of it is kind of where you live. Yeah. Now, I I would say, and I appreciate that, I would say that when Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, that he's still calling for, like in the... implicitly he's calling for some kind of perspective on the part of those who are persecuted. I think he's still saying to them, you know, blessed are the persecuted, but how are they blessed? And and what is it that they're going to experience in persecution that is going to bless them and do something in their hearts? Um, In terms of, you know, those who mourn, you know, I think there's something that's supposed to happen in me. I would agree with you that the perspective of those who would be in relationship with God, we don't usually think of as, well, it's the mournful ones and the meek ones. And especially in that culture, they wouldn't think of that. But isn't Jesus saying, and this is what I want you to be. Yes, it's true. We're not. This isn't the person that we normally think of as being in connection with God. But indeed, this is the person who is in connection with God. And I think this is what you, this is the kind of person that we need to be. So I, I mean, I guess I would still say that there's something happening here in terms of what I'm supposed to uh, experience in my relationship with God, uh, you know, what, what kind of perspective and attitude am I going to hold that puts me in a position where I can hear his teaching best, okay? Anyway, let's move on to the next section. The next section that starts with verse 13 talks about us, in this case, being two different things, We're not just those who are meek and mournful and all of that, but there are two things that we're supposed to be, and he wants to make sure that these qualities possess us. What are they? Salt and and light. Yeah, he wants us to be salt, and he wants us to be light. And then he, he talks specifically about the kind of impact on the world that we'll have if we are, in fact, salt and light. So if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. But if it maintains its saltiness, that can permeate. Something significant can happen with those who remain salty in the sense of being what God wants them to be. And then he talks about being a light, and a light on top of a hill is not covered, but instead enlightens everything around it. Okay. So he wants us to be salt and light in addition to being those things that are mentioned specifically in the Beatitudes, okay? Then, the third kind of introduction here, I think, is Jesus um, establishing the background for understanding the teaching that is going to come. Where does he stand in relationship to all that has come before him as far as teaching? There's this whole book that is present, before Christ ever comes on the scene. The Hebrews regarded this as inspired scripture. They would say that there were certain portions of this that were extremely sacred, even more sacred than others, namely the Torah, the first five chapters of the books of Moses. And Jesus comes along, is going to do something with that. But But where does he stand in relationship to that teaching? And what gives him the right to proceed with some some real changes in in one sense, or at least some real fulfillment of that teaching that has gone before. So somebody want to just read for me uh, those verses, like what, I want to say it's verse uh, 15 or so, 17, okay, start, start, just read that section where Jesus is talking about, uh, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets.
1: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything
0: is accomplished. Why do you think that Jesus was so concerned to say that? Like he's already in the Beatitudes called into some questions at some level, called into question the notion of who's in relationship with God. And and he said, as Jonathan pointed out, it looks different. It's those who mourn and the meek and those kinds of folks who stand in relationship with God. And that looks different. And that would have been a bit of a challenge. So why does he make sure that he says this? John?
2: I think there's a couple of things. And this is just my my view of what I see him doing there. He's setting up in his introduction a kingdom that's like nothing the common people have imagined, or that the teachers of the law really have
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: constructed in the minds of the
0: people. Yeah.
2: Carrie's word reframing. Yeah. You know, he's saying it's nothing like you've been saying it. Right. And so he's kind of preparing them. Or, or the heart of it, I guess. And so, th- this is this is way different, guys. Uh, and so, I think he's got the one thing there that he's he's really serious that we have to obey God's word. I mean, but he's also trying to say, I'm not this opposite opposite day <clears throat> that we had, that I that I appear to teach him. This is uh, this is right in line. With scripture. This is what you should have understood all along. This is, this what you think is a reframing is, is not a reframing. It's like it always was. Right. And so I'm not here to abolish anything. I'm here to follow.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know if you heard everything John said, but John basically said, look, um, I'm here and I'm doing something new, but what I'm doing, this new thing, is right in line with where this should have been all along. And so you, you might hear me say things that sound a bit like they're a, a serious challenge to what we have heard and learned and where we've been before, but this is, is really right where God wants us to be. I'm now, giving you, I'm now giving you the truth about these things and the fulfillment of these things that have gone before. So, and maybe this was the second part you were talking about, and therefore don't reject me. Don't throw me out here thinking that, uh, that I'm so out of line with the teachings that you've heard before, that you now need to to not listen to me. But instead, you do need to listen to me because I'm actually fulfilling this. In fact, fulfilling this in myself. I'm fulfilling this. Steve?
1: One thing that kind of troubles me or it says until everything is accomplished. So is that the death and resurrection of Christ or is that the second coming of Christ? Because... We're, we're not following the law because we believe that with Christ shed blood, it's a new covenant. And we're under grace as right. opposed to law. So which is the accomplice he's talking about here? The second coming or the establishment of the new covenant?
0: You know, I don't know if I've ever thought about that specifically before. Um, but as you asked the question, I kind of want to say neither. Okay. That it's, That we couldn't pin it down to a specific point. I say it's this it's the crucifixion and resurrection for example as opposed to second coming but it it's it's all the things that God is attempting to do through Messiah the complete fulfillment of God's vision for his people and for creation when all people and all creation becomes what God uh, wants it to be that that might be where I would go with that instead of trying to pin it down to some specific chronological point or or specific event But I could be wrong. It's something I need to go think about for sure. Okay, so if those are three types of introduction which set people up for who they're supposed to be, that establishes for them a kind of purpose in relationship to the teaching they're about to hear so that when you hear this and you fulfill this, you're going to be salt and light to all of those who also are hearing this. And if then he is making sure that they understand that he's fulfilling the vision that God has for humankind, even within himself, and he's not actually in violation of Moses, trying to contradict Moses but as his fulfillment of Moses, then I, I think the point was, now you're ready to hear. And so he starts with some instruction. And he begins, actually, we might call this ethical instruction. And this is where, like Steve was talking a moment ago, about how all these things have to do with relationships. And I would agree, this does look like relationship stuff for sure. And there's a certain pattern and way in which Jesus goes about teaching this new way of life. And that's really what it is. Like we say, it's ethical teaching. But in many senses, it's, just, it's a new way of living that they just haven't really heard quite this way before. And as Jesus does this, he does it in a very specific style. So I want you to look at verse 21. And in our modern Bibles, you know, this is kind of laid out in paragraphs and with headings. And so this isn't very hard uh, to pick up on. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, where was that said? Ten Commandments, okay? That comes right out of the Ten Commandments, right at the heart of the Jewish law. So Jesus has just said, I'm not coming to violate Moses, I'm coming to fulfill Moses, and then he jumps right into the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't just leave it alone. Jesus actually does something with this particular commandment, which is very interesting. Something that wasn't normally done with this particular commandment. So he says, uh, verse 21, and you'll be subject to judgment, verse 22, but I tell you, And for Jesus to say, but I tell you, is really radical language. Like, who has the right, having read something right out of the Ten Commandments, to say afterwards, but? No one does. That's the point. Go ahead, Ronnie. All the time so the
2: rabbi so that they just,
0: they yeah if what Ronnie's talking about is that there are there are a couple of major works that came out not too long after this um, one, one's called the Jerusalem Talmud, the other the Babylonian Talmud, both referred to normally as the Talmud, and then there's a book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah and the Talmud are interpretations by the rabbis of different sections from the Old Testament law. And sometimes they're interpretations of the interpretations of the interpretations of the Old Testament law. And so they're constantly doing this. And uh, you're exactly right. They'll say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. But then Rabbi so-and-so came along and he said this, and that's really the authoritative word here. Okay, we need to listen to the third rabbi or the fourth rabbi or whatever. So it can't be Shemile, or instead it has to be Hillel, who are you know the the particular Rabbi that we're going to listen to. So for Jesus to say, as I said, "But I tell you," who would say this? Um, n- no one really has the authority and the right, especially upon the reading of an Old Testament uh, command, to say in response, "But I tell you." And so that in itself is a good explanation for why Jesus. Gives us those preliminaries because anybody who's hearing that, which, and they're all Jews, all these people sitting up on the, the hillside, when he starts to teach them, they're all Jewish. And they hear him say, But I tell you, and that's a, a radical kind of statement right there.
1: But isn't, isn't he just saying, I'm a rabbi? Because when, what you just explained about the rabbis writing some commentary, right. they had to be the ones that said that, Yeah. They had to be the ones that wrote it down. Yeah. So when rabbis wrote it down <laughs> it was but i tell you
0: yeah no no i, I would say no <laughs> and the reason why is because he's going to do something radical with this jesus is going to reinterpret this in fact he's going to do something with the whole law here which is a complete reinterpretation um what, what did you say Carrie? earlier what, were, what was your langu- your language yeah, a complete reframing of of the whole law and even a reframing of the Old Testament here, or uh, sorry, the Ten Commandments here. So the rabbis would do some interpreting of the law and they could say, Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way and Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way. But the rabbis would not say, but I'm going to give you something entirely new. I'm going to take this and do something with it that, is, that has never been done before. And that's what Jesus does. He, he reframes this, reapplies this in a way that is absolutely radical in comparison with what's gone on before. So yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but he's not just another rabbi talking here about the law and reflecting on it. He is taking the law and completely reframing it uh, in terms of its, uh, its impact and its context, its directive, and, and the center motivation for keeping it. Because as we can see as this goes on, it's, it now becomes not a matter of keeping a command, it becomes a matter of where is your heart. Which again, that's why I think the Beatitudes were going there, asking the question, what kind of person are you? Because of this reframing of the heart that takes place. So, verse 22, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be dangerous of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then go and offer your gift. Now, by the way, we, we could stop and spend a lot of time on each one of these verses and we don't, that's not the point today. We're not trying to learn the Sermon on the Mount. We're trying to get a picture of what it is that Jesus is doing in his teaching. So we're going to move on here. Uh, verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You remember, and Jesus is going to talk about this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And there there were restrictions, I think, that were offered in that command. Like somebody plucks out your eye, you can't lop off their head. Okay, so there's a restriction there in terms of the reaction that a person can have. But more the point Jesus is going to make is that all of this now becomes a question of where your heart is at. And so when someone has sinned against you, you go to them. If you hold someone against... In fact, Jesus says, if someone holds something against you, if they hold something against you, you go to your brother and try and be restored to him. And you think, well, wait a minute, it's not my responsibility. Somebody else is blowing it here. They've got something against me. It's their responsibility here. I'm not the problem. But Jesus says, you go and be reconciled to your brother. You take the initiative yourself. Because this now becomes not a question of what can I get away with? Or how little can I do? Or what do I need to do to make sure that this turns out the way I want it to? But it becomes a, con- a question of your own heart and where you're at. So, yeah, we can, we can not murder, but still treat people in all kinds of horrible ways, and Jesus says, no, that's not where I'm at at all. Look at verse 27. Same kind of language. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away it 's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, people debate all the time about how literal Jesus meant this. Did he really mean that if my right eye causes me to stumble, I should pluck it out um, personally i don 't take all of that very literally, and I think with good reason because if I pluck my right out because it 's my right eye out because it 's caused me to sin um, What's then gonna happen? I'm
2: gonna end up plucking the other eye out
0: too. I will. Because I still have a left eye. So if I'm sinning with my right eye, I can take it out, but I still have a left eye and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna sin with that. And so I can pluck both my eyes out, but you know I still have whatever. I still have a nose. I still have a mind. I still have the ability to have all kinds of sinful thoughts. What do I need to pluck my brain out because I have sinful thoughts? Instead, Jesus is talking again about a heart change. The one who says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Wow, well, I haven't done that. Could well do all kinds of things just short of that and somehow feel good about himself because he wasn't committing adultery. And the point, of course, is that we're not anymore walking with God when all the lust is present even though we haven't specifically committed adultery, that if we had committed the adultery. And so again, it, it, Jesus goes to the question of where your heart has been. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife, this is verse 31, must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who, commits a, uh, who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What was happening here is that the rabbis... Uh, used a provision from the Old Testament that did allow for divorce to take place and they seized upon it. Here's my chance. I can get out of this marriage rather than honoring the covenant of marriage, which is really the point that Jesus is trying to make. And you'll find the same thing in Matthew chapter 19 and some other verses. We need to honor marriage and honor the marriage covenant, which is a different thing than just trying to uh, honor the law by saying, well, I, I I did this, I divorced her, but I did this all in exactly the way the law says I should do this. I've met the obligation. And Jesus is not wanting that to happen at all. My own opinion, by the way, is that if you ask Jesus whether or not he really allows for divorce, even in the case of committing adultery, I think he would really say, let's not. Jesus is not wanting a divorce to take place, even in the case of adultery. There is that provision. If a person has to go there, they have to go there. But Jesus's choice is that covenants be preserved, that we honor covenants with our hearts first. Well, I'm going to move on here. We could go through and talk about each of these circumstances, the ethical instruction. Jesus, the point again is completely changing the way that all of this goes on uh, in terms of our behavior. We don't live the way God wants us to live because of specific commands. And we're certainly not looking at this in a minimalistic kind of way saying, well, I just want to fulfill the bare bones of the command. Instead, there's a need for a reorientation, a reframing, not just of the law, but of the heart. And my relationship with God, my positive relationship with God needs to be what dictates Uh, My behavior. And that, I think, is is really the point of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And here, what we have is a reorientation of what I'm calling the religious life. The giving of alms, standard practice. Praying, standard practice. Fasting, standard practice. The rabbis would do all three of these things, and they would do them with vigor, and with enthusiasm, but sometimes they would do them in a way that wasn't really the way God wanted them to be done. So, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of the others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And that acts as the kind of introductory statement to these next three paragraphs. Okay, don't do this in order to be seen by men. Verse 2, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets or the hypocrites as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now Jesus uses that same kind of formula in all three of these sections. He uses it in the case of almsgiving he uses it in the case of prayer and he uses it in the case of fasting that our religious lives are not supposed to just be external so if that's the case what has jesus done with our religious life these specific ways in which we might carry out our religion what has he done with that very much so are part of our our everyday life in fact Like, you could have said it this way, and you would have been exactly right. He's de-religionized it. He's de-religionized it. It's like what we say we do with worship. When is worship supposed to take place? Well, yeah, it takes place on Sunday morning, but we would all say that worship is our lives given to God. And so it's the renewing of a life that is really worship. It's following the Sermon on the Mount, which is really worship. And so this just becomes part of our everyday lives, not special religious acts. And so the person who is seeking after God is going to find him or herself giving to the needy when no one knows. And praying in your closet instead of on display, because that reflects true sincerity. And not... Fasting so that everybody can tell that you're fasting, but fast in a way that only God knows what's going on between you and Him in terms of your fasting. So, a complete change in terms of the religious life. Next, Jesus talks specifically about attitudes toward life in this world. And so, in my Bible, I've got a section on treasures in heaven as opposed to treasures on earth. What do we do with? our wealth, and our worldly goods. The next section is don't worry. What do we do with the challenges of life? And when we actually don't have enough, what do we do with that? Um, And and all of that has to do with uh, my trust, my priorities, my focus. And Jesus is saying that the person who has been transformed in this new kingdom life is going to have a completely different perspective on those things than before. We next move into that section, chapter 7, verse 1, attitudes toward others. And so do we judge others? And of course the answer is no. And he talks specifically about that that great uh, notion of having a speck in your eye, or having actually a log in your eye, but a speck in your brother's eye. And you've probably seen some high school skit where they've got a log and... It's actually quite humorous to think about this. The idea of someone having a log in their eye and every time they turn around, they whack somebody. And so, we're trying, you know, I'm trying to get close to Robin so I can see the speck in her eye, but all I'm doing is knocking her out with the log that's sticking out of my own eye. A little bit of humor maybe even on Jesus' part as he talks about that. Then, this notion of disciples' commitment. And so, if, you're, if you want to be a true disciple of Jesus, verse 7, You're going to ask, and it will be given to you. You're going to seek, and you will find. You're going to knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Talks about sincerity, continuing to receive from God the things that we ask for, and depending on Him in the midst of that. Talks about the narrow gates, as opposed to the wide gate. That's the kind of perspective we need to have. Um... I'm going to move on here. Disciples' commitment. Move. Then he, the next thing is, um, well, we don't have much time for this. I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll we'll complete the teachings of Jesus next time, and we'll talk specifically about the parables and some other things, and then move on to the next kind of core idea. You can see though that in the in the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is a core, central, exemplary centered kind of teaching of Jesus that I think needs to be one of those places that we constantly go to. Asking the question, what kind of life should we live? What focus should be ours? How is our life in Christ, like what does that look like? The Sermon on the Mount is certainly maybe the best place to go in order to see that central concept of living out our lives before God. All right, Thanks, everybody.